Greetings, outcasts, free thinkers, narrative questioners, dot connectors, and genuinely open-minded and outright curious inhabitants of whatever realm we exist in at the moment. You are about to embark on another free first hour episode of The Notes. If you find yourself wanting to dig deeper and have the desire to join the conversation during our monthly Melt meetups, you might want to consider becoming a monthly subscriber. For as little as three lousy Babylon hokey pokey tokens per month, you can have access to full-length, early, and exclusive episodes. Just visit patreon.com slash themeltpodcast or click the link in the episode notes to set the process in motion. It's simple, painless, and very well might make you feel tingly inside. So without further ado, please enjoy the show! This is Hunter Muse. And this is Chris Snipes. And you are listening to The Melt. One of the main illusions that often goes unnoticed but almost completely permeates our lives is the concept of boundaries. Boundaries divide people, experiences, fields of research and thought, and bodies of water and land masses. The problem with this is that sometimes drawing a hard boundary between different things can sometimes obscure their similarities. If we get too fixated on the definition, we can lose sight of the thing that we're trying to define. Boundaries lend themselves to identity, and identity lends itself to limitation. The same applies to the esoteric community. As united as we think of ourselves and even pride ourselves on our ability to both critically think and be open-minded, we can still fall into the trap of dividing things up into categories so much so that we tend to lose sight of the overlaps that might allow us to comprehend what it is that we're trying to figure out in a more lucid fashion. Today's guest, author and musician Joshua Kutchin, is excellent at blurring these boundaries in his articulate assessment of the paranormal in all of its manifestations. He joins us today to chat with us about his recent book, Ecology of Souls, Volume 1, and I start off the conversation by asking Josh what it is that he's referring to in the title of his book. Well, I wanted to convey several things. Uh, I believe that probably the first one was I wanted to refute this really narrow Judeo-Christian dichotomy that you run into a lot. Um, as, as a person of faith myself, of, of the Christian faith, I often get really frustrated when people talk about 
the paranormal and they just try to shove it into this, you know, this two tiered system of good and bad angels and demons and things like that. And the, the term ecology, you know, if you're, if you're buying this book looking for some sort of like actual ecological uh, model to map onto the paranormal, you're probably going to be sorely disappointed. <laughs> but what I was trying to get at that was the idea that it's, it's a vast and diverse um, ecosystem within the paranormal where certain things fulfill certain roles and where there are probably a lot fewer of those good things and bad things than there are things that just have no agenda and they're sort yeah, of free agents. Exactly. Um, the, the analogy that I use in the book is a, a tornado or a shark is not evil, but don't be surprised when, they're in, when their uh, motivations don't align with you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> or, their, or their actions. Yeah, I guess a tornado doesn't have motivations, but that sort of carries it across. So, so that was part of it. Um, the other one was to sort of pay homage to someone who's been a a big influence on my thinking, which is Terrence McKenna. And there was a famous lecture where he's talking about, it was trying to sort of reconcile what the DMT experienced. And he says, you say, my God, is it the fact that we've somehow broken through into an ecology of souls? And <laughs> and that sort of was something that I wanted to convey because he is a big influence on this book in general and provided a lot of the connective tissue, not only in the, uh, not only in the, the chapter on altered states of consciousness, but he's the, the, the ghost of St. Terry of McKenna sort of runs through all the other chapters as well. Yeah, for sure. I, and that's uh, such an appropriate picture of him being on the cover of the book portrayed as a saint. Yeah, I had a couple ideas and, you know, I just, I, I, I knew I wanted some sort of like quasi Byzantine uh, cover art. And uh, so I just threw a bunch of ideas at this wonderful artist, Johnny Decker Miller and he came up with that and it was just like, yep, because I'm a big believer in hiring people whose work you like and then just giving them the basic parameters and saying, go to your thing. Yes. And I'm probably going to be happy with like, <laughs> you know, 80% of what you do. I'll have a couple of suggestions, but that's it. So uh -huh. that was definitely the case with this. Oh, man, totally, totally worked. And I love that kind of iconography. And of course, I'm just as big a fan of Ter Terrence McKenna. So I was like, before I even knew what the book was about, I'm like, I'm, I'm in. Just, <laughs> right, right. Where can I, where can I buy one? Um, okay. So let's, uh, uh, one of the things that you, many, many things that you mentioned in the book, uh, lots of theories and ideas and, and uh, kind of takes on what you are calling the ecology of souls are bandied about. But one of them is co-creation theory. W what is that all about? Well, you can probably trace the roots back even farther than this, but it was an idea that was sort of bandied about um, by folks like Hillary Evans and even Ginny Randall's talked about it a bit. I'm sure that it probably has some analogs in ancient religion that aren't immediately springing to mind, but it's an idea that I first learned about from my mentor, Greg Bishop, who proposed it as a way of sort of reconciling not only high strangeness, but the way that these phenomena seem to be culturally and contextually dependent yes uh, in other words uh there are certain things that you see certain times if you look back through like for example just the ufo literature i think it can be applied to a lot of this but if you're just looking at ufo literature the phenomena seems to adapt and change with our expectations and um there are certain absurdities that that obviously come along with all that so the idea basically is that um what we see when we perceive the paranormal in which i lump ufos unlike some folks um is only a partial representation of what is actually there um what is actually there is really anyone's guess but sure. the idea is that um 
the idea is that you bring something to that experience yourself and you bring your own biases, your own, um, you know, cultural expectations, and you sort of graph that on there. Now, there's a little bit of, I've been pushing Greg to write the co-creation book, right, to revive these ideas and flesh them out a little bit more. There's a little bit of, um, I wouldn't say debate, but there's a little bit of, of ambiguity as to exactly what that means. Um, mm-hmm. Does it mean that the phenomenon reaches into your head and flips through the Rolodex of stuff in your brain and says, oh, I'm going to be Bigfoot today? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or does it mean that, uh, you know, this is some sort of benevolent version of of Lovecraft, right? You know, <laughs> in Lovecraft, the, uh, the protagonists often can't come to grips with the horrors that they're seeing and they yes. just sort of like map something onto it. Uh, one, one, one way or the other, um, that might be what's happening. And once you sort of start to internalize that idea, it makes sense of a lot of the um, inconsistencies that you see across the phenomena, which, you know, for a book about, cons- uh, for a book about consistencies, there's plenty of inconsistencies too. Um, you know, we're led to believe that there are 40 different subspecies of Bigfoot and that there are, you know, uh-huh. 120 different races of aliens visiting us. And yes. while I, while I believe in the objective nature of these phenomena at some level, that that sort of pushes my own, uh, limits of belief. Sure. It's interesting that you should bring up Lovecraft because I think of his works as so sort of co-creative uh, because he doesn't, he only implies uh, things. He only will describe the shadow of something. He doesn't actually describe the entity or creature that he's talking about. So it makes your brain insert its own stuff in there. It's it's one of the reasons that you know Lovecraft remains almost unfilmable. You know, I, yeah. I, I thought that the Color Out of Space that Richard Stanley did was a, a great um, attempt at that. You know, if you, it's one of those situations, I kind of feel the same way about the Watchmen movie. Actually, mm. um, it's one of those things where, like, if you had to do it, if you had to put it on cinema, um, if you had to put it on film, then that's probably the best that you're going to do. Yeah. yeah, 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 and so many bad versions of Lovecraft books. Uh, we're turning to movies. I mean, it's Very it's true. a shame because he's he's such a great author, uh, and it could be done so well and in a more much more artful way. It doesn't shouldn't be handled like a B movie, like most of his stuff is. But handled. yeah, you know, I think of Robert Wise's what is it, nineteen sixty nine version of the haunting black and white film, yeah, which yeah. is mm. to this day one of the best haunted house films ever. Exactly. And you don't really see anything the whole time. And yes. I think a Lovecraft movie approach with that sort of care. Yeah. would be a sight to behold. Absolutely. Absolutely. I totally agree. What do you think about the co-creative nature of plasma entities? Like, Right. I, 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 so I have this, I have this bit of speculation and one of my future projects is going to be diving into this a little bit more, but I have this bit of wild speculation and I recognize it as such that when we see these lights, it's the closest that we're going to get to the pure unvarnished, um, form of these things. And and I say that because the lights are everywhere, you know. <laughs> the lights appear obviously in UFO encounters, obviously in, you know, ghost stories. They have a close association with Bigfoot. They have a, plenty of associations in the fairy folklore. They appear in near-death experiences, they appear in out-of-body experiences, they appear in psychedelic trips, they even appear in lake monster encounters of all things. So mm. they they really do seem to 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 span the the gamut of all these phenomena and, and what we, you know, what we deem them to be is entirely context dependent. I mean, it's sort of a demonstrable version of, of co-creation on, on its face, right? Mm-hmm. Because, Oh, you saw it in the sky. It's a UFO. Yeah. You saw it in a house. Oh, and now it's a ghost. You know, exactly. there's, there's very, very rarely do people 
I think, realize that the, the context plays such a role in defining these things. So I have this working theory uh, that I'd love to explore that when you see the lights, like that's that's the closest you're going to get to like what this thing actually is, mm-hmm. right? And the, mm-hmm. and the example that I always use is uh, if you've ever played a uh, PC game, you know, back in those Halcyon days when you might be muddling around with the textures and adding some mods to your game. Uh, on some occasions, I accidentally removed or deleted a texture from the game. And whenever that texture would appear in the video game on my PC, uh, it would just be, you know, if it was a wall of brick texture, it would just be like a pink square, you know, <laughs> or a black square or something. It would just be like, you know, a 404 not found kind of situation. Uh, yeah. uh-huh. And I kind of wonder if, 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 you know, using these different uh, modalities of appearance as analogous for the texture, um, if that's not sort of what's going on in these experiences. Yeah. And of course there's, you know, there's another layer to this. I mean, uh, people have often cited the possibility that dimethyltryptamine is at the very least a vector for contacting the paranormal. And, you know, I'll be damned if DMT isn't related to me- melatonin and triggered through, you know, visual, uh, you know, light stimuli. So it kind of makes me wonder if there's something, some sort of special spectrum that these lights emit that sort of allow us to unfold and enter into these, um, these realities. Yeah, for sure. And there's different levels of, of the, am I, do I keep butting in front of you? Well, I just wanted to say that it's also, uh, there's a potential that it could be, that's what we're capable of perceiving at this level of our awareness that that mm-hmm. that light spectrum is actually another energy or another entity, but at this level of our awareness, we see it as an orb. You know what I like about that is because it's actually a more accurate way to bring the dimension conversation into this than any of the things that people say are dimensions, right? So, you know, one of the more popular ideas about UFOs and some of this other stuff is that they come in from other dimensions, and it's it's a version of dimensions that's influenced by like the TV show sliders and, mm-hmm. and, and comic book multiverse stuff. It's yes. not, you know, if you read Flatland, that ain't what it's about, you know, but <laughs> what you're getting at with, with uh, us being able to, pers- the lights being just what we're able to perceive is a lot more analogous to the Flatland essay than, than, than uh, any of this idea of, you know, dimension hopping and oh, all of a sudden I'm a, you know, uh, someone living in, Vienna and I've got a sausage growing out of my head or something, you know, Um, (laughs) because in case anybody doesn't know, the idea is that in the essay flatland, it's a two dimensional space and Mm -hmm. and a finger that would be put down on a piece of paper. wouldn't appear as a finger at all. And it would be more or less incomprehensible, but the best you could probably get out of it would be like a circle, you know, because the dimension for perception would be, there you go. So yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm here. I am flatland explaining to you. Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's okay. There might be listeners out there who don't know what we're referring to. Uh, I just have to say, I so nailed that comment. <laughs> oh, you totally did. Oh, you totally did. <laughs> um, and there's different levels of templates too. I mean, there's it could go anywhere from cultural or uh, within a religious context or a spiritual context down to somebody's, like, like you said, their own personal internal Rolodex of like, Oh, my deceased uncle his face is appearing on this entity or, you know, the smell of his cologne or something like that. Well, yeah. And, and that's the disconcerting thing uh, or the most disconcerting thing, I suppose I should say about something like procreation theory is that it does sort of up in those traditionally comforting experiences. Yeah. Uh, 
that you know you might not be seeing dead Aunt Ethel. It might be something with a more sinister agenda trying exactly. to coax you into doing something. Yeah, for sure. Like the scene in The Exorcist where uh, Linda Blair starts imitating the priest's mother voice and totally like almost has him has her has him in her grips uh by just kind of being the trickster in that situation but what do you think of science's rejection uh, of the validity of firsthand experiences in these matters i think it's bullshit yeah of course i mean so i mean here's here's the argument that i heard articulated a while back and i can't remember exactly who said it but i mean if you look through the conditions in the the dsm I mean, a lot of those are basically anecdotal. I mean, yeah, we can, you know, take a brain scan of you. This is not a technical term, but you take my meaning. We can, we can, we can, we can, brain scan. We, we, can we can measure aspects of your um, neurology and we can see that something uh, non-typical is going on. But as far as the way that that manifests and the experience that it manifests, uh, we rely on the individual's testimony. And by that, we're able to categorize them with other people who have similar conditions. You know, if we just relied on tests, we wouldn't really have um, the sort of classification or the breakdown, I guess, of of mental illnesses that we do. Um, So I I think that is something that's, you know, it's also a bigger, it's also a bigger problem with just people of that inclination, that sort of reductivist skeptic, skeptic inclination, not really realizing the fact that all of our scientific measurements are still mediated by our four, by our five senses. Exactly. You know, you're, yeah. you're still reading numbers on a page that come from a visual readout. I mean, exactly. Yeah, it's every everything really does come down to to personal experience. You know, it does. It does. And I think that's it's that's maybe where everything starts. Like, how does science even mm. know what direction to start looking in unless people start having these firsthand experiences and then then you get a group of people who have had similar experiences and then maybe there's something to look into here, you know? Uh, So I think to totally invalidate those things and only pay attention to things that can materially be quantified, it's missing, totally missing the point. Yeah. And and it, it really rears its head when you get into the near death experience literature. Um, You know, I always said that there's one hill that I'll die on uh, in terms of being like, nope, you're, you're denying reality, you're denying the evidence. And that's psi phenomena, right? But a close near second, it's not quite a hill. It's like sort of, I guess, like a, a hillock that I'll die on. Right? A mound. <laughs> a mound that I'll die on. Um, how appropriate, given the, given the yeah, context. Yeah, exactly. Um, is, is the near-death experience, because so many of these experiences have an, a veridical element to it. Um, For sure. Yes, it's completely anecdotal, but, you know, um, this... You know, you have these stories of people finding out before anyone else in the family about someone who just passed away during their own near-death experience. And they'll yes. come out and they'll say, you know, Uncle Bob is dead. And they're like, Uncle Bob's fine. And they try to ring him on the phone. They're like, oh, no, Uncle Bob is actually dead. Yeah, How did exactly. you know about him before? You know, there's the famous incident of the the cardiac arrest um, patient, and I believe it was Washington State, who saw that there was a uh, shoe on a ledge yeah. of uh yeah of a hospital and accurately mm-hmm. described it and sure enough like you couldn't have just like looked you'd have to like look out and get out it was just and if she supposedly saw this from a third person out of body state you know the only problem with that sort of thing is that um there have been some studies to try and put like knickknacks around hospitals and to see if near-death experiencers will report them mm-hmm. in out of out of the way places and i believe all those have sort of come to come to naught um but 
having said that, I think that it's just it's just such an important um, it's an important part of the conversation. There's so much good good evidence for for again incorporating that firsthand quote unquote anecdotal testimony with something that you can actually verify. The, mm-hmm. the problem with all this stuff is that you know uh, it doesn't abide by controls, and a, yeah. a big part of that is probably you know the fact that. You know, if if you can get IRB approval to you know uh, to put a child in a traumatic situation, then yeah, you probably will get a lot of psi phenomena from mothers and fathers in the laboratory. You yeah, know what I mean? Exactly. But the things that they, you know, the things that they always, um, the things that they always do are just so mundane, like Zinner cards and stuff. It's yeah, like, yeah. I, I'm not I'm not invested at all on any sort of deeper emotional level on what's on the other side of on the reverse side of this card so yeah i suspect something like that's going on sorry that i rambled a bit well to circle back to the dsm-5 it's really a tool that is used for uh insurance purposes it's not really used as a diagnostic what they're trying to do is code for people so that they can get their their treatments covered Mm. for insurance. So what a lot of doctors and psychiatrists will do is they will work within the confines of the DSM-5, but really kind of massage it to make sure people get treatment who need it because the symptoms don't necessarily match anything that's in the DSM-5. So I think that's kind of an interesting aspect to what you're saying that's interesting i i hadn't really i wasn't really aware of that um yeah so that I'm trying to think of what exactly that would sort of imply with all this it does imply i would i think what i'm gathering from what you're saying is that it implies that there's more fluidity between these conditions than we like to say than we like to believe i guess yeah so someone might be classified as schizophrenic so that they maintain their health coverage but in reality in the treatment that might not be the treatment that they are receiving meaning they might not be receiving those pharmaceuticals that are involved they might be receiving talk therapy that um, maybe gives the the uh, psychiatrist a little bit more leeway in being able to treat them so in, in some ways i think what this sort of the question it begs is it, it suggests that we're relying almost solely on and the anecdotal firsthand experience, right? Totally. Because, because every method of treatment is catered to the individual's, you know, uh, experience. To use that word way too many times in one <laughs> sentence. <laughs> if it's apropos, but yeah, that, that's that's fa- that's fascinating. Yeah. yeah. Well, and a lot of the research, I'm going through the IRB process right now, a lot of the research that is being done that would have any influence whatsoever would have to be a case study. You wouldn't be able to do an experimental design with something that would be considered paranormal because there is no control for that, as you were saying. Right. And, and, and the thing that's so frustrating for me is that even that's why I, I sort of retreat to the position of, of psi phenomena, because, you know, I don't think that that's exactly optimal conditions for some of this research, but uh, you know, there are folks like Dean Radin who mm-hmm. have, who have just done real yeoman's work in terms of like trying to play by the rules and mm-hmm. it's, they still get, you know, their claims still fall upon deaf ears and it's, it's quite frustrating. Yeah. I think there's a couple of different camps when it comes to, 
parapsychology and that field. There are people who just find it woo-woo because it can't, it's not really testable. And then there are other people who have dealt enough in psychiatry and psychology to say, okay, there's got to be something here because there are people who don't fall under these, the uh, confines of mental health or mental illness. And Mm. so much of that is based on distress. So if you, you've had a near death experience and it's not a distressing experience for you, then you may not seek mental health care. It's people who go into those situations under duress and uh, maybe a court order because they are considered a harm to themselves or someone else. So is that the optimal condition to be interviewing someone? Yeah, there's sort of a a self, surprise, surprise, a self-negating aspect to this. You know, anybody who's read George P. Hansen's The Trickster and the Paranormal will will recognize that phrase. But there's sort of a self-negating aspect to all this and the fact that uh, we have a real, some real errors or some real shortcomings in self-selection and the types of samples that we are able to to even call upon. You know, Um, there there have been some longitudinal not longitudinal, that's the wrong word. There have been some large scale um, attempts to sort of parse the data of UFO experiencers. And uh, some of the conclusions that they've come to uh, are that, you know, a lot of these experiences are positive. Now, if, if you've read Ecology of Souls, you, you see that I kind of wind up in a similar space, but I sort of Goldilocks my way there as opposed to just looking at some data. But the argument to be made there is that, oh, you know, all of our respondents said that this was a positive experience. Well, how is the you know, how was the data collected? Oh, it was a voluntary survey online. So it's like, how many, how many people are having, you know, PTSD from these experiences and just don't want to even think about, you know, what happened to them. So, yeah. yeah. Um, And I think that, again, I think that it's kind of baked into these topics that they're always going to fall short of that scrutiny, which is why, you know, I, I don't approach these things from a scientific perspective. (laughs) I think it's a fool's errand. Yeah. Yeah. Totally agree. Well, while we're on the subject of NDEs, what are some of the overlaps that have occurred in, in all of this gathering of these experiences? Well, you know, that's sort of, I wrote this and I just, I wrote it, I wrote Ecology of Souls as something that I just wanted to see, which, you know, is sort of the, the guiding advice that they always say, like write a book that you wish existed. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, and at one point I was like, well, what does this really add into the conversation? And what I think it ended up sort of doing is, putting a lot of these contact modalities to use that term. So UFO experiences, psychedelic experiences, shamanic initiations, um, cryptid encounters, trips to fairyland and, you know, near death experiences, putting those in sort of dialogue with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, because over the years, there have been people who have made these comparisons, you know, uh, Kenneth Ring did a great job of saying, hey, folks, these alien abductions look a lot like these near-death experiences. And there mm-hmm. have been people who have said, you know, like Eddie Bullard, a uh, folklorist, uh, who've said, uh, hey, these UFO, you know, contact experiences look like a lot like the, these shamanic initiations. And there are pe- people, you know, people have always just drawn this one, 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 you know, comparisons here and there. But I don't think anybody has really sort of said, no, take a look at all these in aggregate. And uh, I sort of came up with, I can't remember, probably about 10 or a dozen um shared points that tend to crop up often across all these different modalities. Um, Of course, it's never quite as tidy as I want it to be. You know, I think it always fulfills like each, each one has a 75% overlap with all the other ones. You know, inevitably there's one or two bullet points where it's like, well, you don't really hear about that, but 
you know, specifically in the near-death experience, you've got uh, a uh, initiatory sound, I guess would be the best way to put it, you know, humming, buzzing, whistling, uh, like the sound of onrushing water or something along those lines. Um, you know, uh, the dissociative feeling of an out-of-body experience from the third perspective. Um, you know, th- some of the things that we associate closest with the near-death experience are actually not as prevalent as was once thought. Even Raymond Moody himself, the sort of near-death experience pioneer, said as much. I say that referring to the tunnel experience, you know, the idea that you're traveling down this darkened tunnel towards bright light and the life review, you know, the idea that you see your life flashing before your eyes, you see sort of a synopsis of everything you've gone through in your life. You know, they're, they're common enough that they weren't mentioned certainly, but they're not like, you know, every MDE has to have these, um, these pastoral settings. Sometimes these pastoral settings might be accompanied by cities of light or subterranean spaces, uh, you have sort of unearthly, undescribable music. Um, entities of all sorts show up in near-death experiences. Uh, you know, people see, you know, I, I love the fact that uh, people see gray aliens in near-death experiences and they see Jesus aboard UFOs. Like, this is a thing that happens, folks. <laughs> and you got you to gotta, you gotta take all the data and try to figure it out. Very postmodern. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, And, uh, you know, inaccessible knowledge. Sometimes people are given knowledge about other things in our world that they uh, wouldn't normally have awareness of. An ultimatum to stay or go. Uh, And and obviously our data is a little bit skewed on that because we don't know how many people choose to to stay. Um, There are probably some others that I'm forgetting, but that's sort of a a rough sketch. And, And again, once you sort of take those points and you compare them to the UFO literature and you compare them to the fairy folklore and you compare them to all these different things you start to see a lot of similarities yeah, enough yeah. That, that made me go and i hate this because it's kind of reductive in its own way but are all these things taking us beyond the same threshold you know are all these things taking us into the same place and part of me likes that but part of me also doesn't like that because um again it, it does have a, a whiff of reductionism to it, but I think it definitely begs the question that at the very least that these experiences have a lot more in common than they uh, have as differences. And is it one of the aspects missing time? Oh uh, yes. The, yes. Thank you for reminding me of one of the most obvious ones that I should remember. Um, yeah. And you know, I, I, you know, missing time, or even in some cases, I guess the opposite of missing time would be like found time. So right. sure. missing time usually refers to a long absence, a long absence of, of time that you can't recall that feels unnaturally short. Um, very popular in the UFO literature um, appears to be a direct, uh, a direct lift from sort of the older fairy literature. You know, you have all these stories of people, you know, going in for a, uh, it's actually usually an aversion in the fairy literature, to be honest, but they go, they go into uh they go into fairyland for a day and they emerge and it's seven years later. So yeah. Something along that, something to that effect. Um, and in near death experiences, there are oftentimes where people feel like they're spending hours in this other realm mm-hmm. and it's a short amount of time on this side. Um, you know, and similarly like psychedelic trips, dreams, like these things happen over and over again, much to my shock. Like if you actually pay attention to some of the, the Bigfoot literature, there's missing time and a, a fair amount of Bigfoot stories. Yeah. You know, one of my, uh, we probably talked about this when we talked about, uh, uh footprints, Chris, but, mm-hmm. um, a uh, way back when, uh, yes. 
But uh, in Where the Footprints In, one of the stories that I pulled again for Ecology of Souls Volume 2 was the story of uh, Wes Germer from Sasquatch Chronicles, very popular podcast. And at the time, he he's since he's since reevaluated his stance on Bigfoot. And I'm very <laughs> proud of him for sort of coming out and acknowledging the fact. But at the time, the, the podcast was very antagonistic towards yeah Bigfoot's flute players. Yeah, yeah, flute players. That was the sort of the, the, the yeah epithet that they would use. Um, and he said, you know, he and his brother had this harrowing Bigfoot encounter. A lot of people have written like essays trying to debunk it. That's not as interesting to me as as this next part. Which he said, you know, they went up there and they came back down and they said, I can't, they could, he and his brother couldn't think of any way that the experience should have lasted like 40 minutes at tops because they were in their car as these Bigfoot were circling their vehicle. And they came down the mountain like several hours later. Mm. And, then the, and the reductionist explanation was, well, you know, when you're in intense situations, uh, you, you feel like time speeds up and like that's, no, that's literally the opposite. Not, the opposite. Yeah. <laughs> like, it, it's not. Only, it's not only the opposite anecdotally. As long as we're on the topic of anecdotes, like it's the opposite, like proven in laboratory settings. You know. So, um, so yeah, uh, and and that's not the only story. Like you can find several other stories of people who have missing time and Bigfoot encounters. So it's just again, like and not only missing time, but like the amnesia that sometimes accompanies mm-hmm. that. Um, you know, uh, <laughs> it was a great. A great example of this gentleman by the name of Steve Boucher, who, who claims to have had a lot of uh, alien abduction experiences, and he said that uh, oftentimes he would forget them unless he like took out a journal that he dedicated to his experiences and write wrote them down right away. And I'm like, oh, so like like a dream journal, right? <laughs> like a dream journal or a trip report. Like these things tend to fade, yeah, um, with 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 a rather rapid, you know, in a, in a rather rapid way. And again, you just see it time and again. And it just, it really does make you wonder, you know, the comparativism is, is my bread and butter. And that's what makes me think that it's kind of just one big pie and we just see different slices from time to time. Yeah. Well, the, the, this couple of books seems to be a natural extension of the Where the Footprints End uh, books too, because you were doing a lot of uh, boundary blurring then and drawing all these similarities from things that people usually have hard boundaries in between. So I love it. I think that that's, that's much more realistic than, you know, trying to put things in neat categories and it just, it doesn't work that way. Well, you know, at the end of the day, I, to use UF, ufology as an example, I mean, you know, 70, 70, 70 years of, of the nuts and bolts approach, you know, yes. 70 years of measuring burn marks in the ground and, and meta materials. Um, hasn't really gotten us anywhere. And I know some people would disagree with that. I mean, I would say that the dialogue's changed, but the answers are still no more forthcoming. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, like, let's try something a little bit different. You know, what's the definition of insanity? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And some people are driven insane by these differences, just banging heads. Sure. Yeah, I'm not... I'm not, uh, I'm not straying from my stance. You're not straying from your stance. Let's just butt heads and accomplish nothing. Yeah, let's keep the UFO people over here and the ghost people over here. And we yeah. just won't, you know, never the twain shall meet. Exactly. Yeah. So, and sometimes people pull powers back from these experiences too, right? Especially NDEs. Yeah, that was a really interesting thing to me. I mean, so some of these are sort of mundane, obnoxious powers, like the power to ruin light bulbs and electronics. <laughs> but there have been a lot of claims of uh, spirit contact, of um, foreseeing the future, and, uh, you know, healing, uh, some of those are more easily verified than others. 
there are plenty of anecdotal accounts of people having a certain amount of oh, what's it called when you're it's like clairvoyance at a distance. I guess it might just be clairvoyance, but like you know, being aware of when someone's in trouble without you know actually having a phone call or or seeing them or anything, you know. Um, and I was astonished to learn that uh, I don't think this is an explanation, but again, it's an interesting correlation. It's an interesting comparison to make. A lot of these Greco-Roman uh, seers and prophets were those who it was believed when they were due to reincarnate, they didn't drink the uh, they didn't drink the broth of oblivion. They didn't drink, you know, nepenthe. Um, or lethe, as it might be called in some examples. And so they retain their memories of, of their experiences. And mm-hmm. it's like, oh, that's it. You know, it seems seems to be it. Uh, so a lot of people said, well, why doesn't everybody have a near-death experience? Well, maybe some of us <laughs> decide to, to you know, throw down some some otherworldly beverage before we get over here. <laughs> um, but yeah, but it's, it's that idea that, like, when you return back with that sort of knowledge or that sort of remembering um, that you actually end up manifesting these powers. And I think you can make a pretty clear uh, analogy to a lot of the shamanic uh, practitioners in a lot of different cultures. Get this out of the way. Um, Shamanism is a broad and not nearly as applicable term to a lot of these cultures um, as we once sort of treated it. Um, By shamanism, I mean medicine men, medicine women, seers, uh, ayahuascaros, like anybody who is serving as an intercessor between this world and what we would call a spirit world. So mm-hmm. it's just for ease of nomenclature. It doesn't really speak specifically to like sort of that ecstatic tradition, but in a lot of these cultures, you know, that's, 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 that's sort of the power from which a shaman, that's, that's the sort of source from which the shaman draws their power, right? They have a recollection of what the other side is like, and they have a rec- recollection of, uh, of, of knowledge from the spirit world. Mm-hmm. And to that extent, a lot of these shamanic initiates, sorry, initiations rather, um, are sometimes, try, it seems like they're trying to induce near-death experiences. Um, there are some people, including Gregory Shushan, who's done a lot of work on indigenous near-death experiences, who says you can't quite draw that 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 uh, comparison all the time. But again, it happens enough that you can sort of say, yeah, it does look like it's sort of like trying to induce almost a near-death experience in these people to bring them back to do that bar- a bungee into the bardo, as, <laughs> as uh, Terrence McKenna called it. Um, and uh, I mean, this is no more apparent than in cultures, uh, especially some, some African cultures where their shamanic initiates are actually buried alive and then exhumed. Mm, like yeah. how much closer to a death and rebirth can you get? Exactly. You know, um, so yeah, it's you know it, sometimes it gets hard talking about this because it's like oh yeah it happens over here and here and here and here and here and here <laughs> that's where every data point sort of like you know ends up it's like yeah it's seen across pretty much all of them yeah um, you know one of the one of the few examples that you don't see is uh, you don't see for example the life review in alien abductions that often there mm-hmm. are a couple of cases there are a couple of cases um, but then it dawned on me. Uh, that you might be seeing sort of a variation on that. I have this idea that I play with a bit uh, that basically the concept is inversion equals representation. And what I mean by that is uh, the idea was sort of kindled in me when I read Patrick Harper's demonic reality. It's a fantastic book. Mm-hmm. I turned to it time and again. Um, but he said, you know, uh, he was referring to the exodus of the fairies and he says, the fairies are always going, 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 but never gone. And the aliens are always coming, 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 but never here. <laughs> and it I was like, it. Oh, okay. So, there, so, you know, at, at first blush, these appear to be completely diametrically opposed things, but they're kind of getting at the same idea. Right. So with that in mind, I, I kind of think that, uh, 
the reason that we don't see life reviews in um, alien abductions is because you basically see what amount to Gaian previews, right? So you don't see a, a synopsis of past events of the individual. You see a synopsis of future events of the collective. You know, you mm. see things like uh, the end of the world, just eschatological imagery in general yeah, yeah. is what you get in alien abduction. So it's, to me, it's like, well, maybe that's sort of driving at the same thing in a, in a it's because it's so specifically opposite. It kind of makes me wonder if it's not driving at the same thing. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And another aspect that I was considering when you were talking about NDEs, uh, UFO experiences, Bigfoot or, or Sasquatch experiences would be rites of passage. Because it would seem that, th- that in those rites, you would be pushing someone to an extreme, either through some degree of starvation or deprivation, sleep deprivation. What do you think of that? No, a hundred percent. In fact, I would, I would say that in some one, I think an argument could probably be made that one culture's rite of passage is another culture's shamanic initiation. Yeah, some of these exactly. rites of passage, some of these rites of passage are so arduous. I mean, you know, my, my favorite example is always the, uh, the glove full of bullet ants. I can't remember what the yeah. tribe does that, but they like make a, they weave a mitt for you to put your hand in there. And it's just filled with these bullet ants that, you know, they're named bullet ants because every bite or sting rather feels like a being shot with a bullet. Yeah, shit. So, um, or frat yeah, hazing. It's apparently miserable. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so yeah, I mean, you know, both are sort of liminal transitional stages. Um, and, uh, they do sort of signify, an emergence into being, you know, you're standing in the community changes. I sometimes wonder, and this is an idea that some friends and colleagues have put before, so it's not original to me, but I do wonder sometimes if things like alien abductions um, aren't because we're not meeting our, you know, shamanic quota or our rite of passage quota, you know, it's like, Mm -hmm. well, you're not doing this. So the universe is going to do it (laughs) because since you're not, since you actually aren't taking the initiative to do this, um, we're going to do it as the universe, whatever that is. And uh, you're going to be really confused because you have no framework for this anymore. (laughs) Exactly. Well, and when you were talking about amnesic experiences, one thing I was thinking about in my recent studies is uh, memory and how memory and recall work. We don't ever lose our memory in totality. What happens is that we compartmentalize memory. So Mm. I think the... Uh, what I would posit is that some of these experiences that are too traumatizing for our consensus reality to process, we compartmentalize that. We put that in a, an aspect of our brain where it's basically in like cold storage. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and you know, this, the only thing keeping me from getting a hundred percent on that bandwagon is that it, the idea has kind of been weaponized uh, in some corners of skepticism. Um, look, I have a, I have a lot of, per, a lot of problems about some of, with some of the most prominent alien abduction figures. Um, you know, John Mack was doing a bang up job. I think mm-hmm. most of his work was on the up and up, but like you look at Bud Hopkins and David Jacobs and it's like, what's going on here? So there's some criticism to be had. There's some criticism of hypnosis as well, but you know, in the nineties, especially it was common to say, Oh, these are just, you know, repressed memories of childhood trauma because a lot of these people would, you know, have childhood trauma, which is a sort of a different discussion in and of itself. But, you know, I, I do think that there's, a, there's a part of that. Um, and, you know, I think that 
with in in regards specifically to that idea of amnesia and sort of like walling these ideas off. I mean, how many times have you these memories that these memories that come back to people? I mean, they 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 have an amnesia of the experience, but oftentimes a simple trigger will just make it come all washing back. So it mm-hmm. does it does imply that there's some sort of you know storage mechanism, or or as you alluded to, sort of a uh, quarantine <laughs> mechanism yeah. to it, and yeah. and you see this you see this in your day to day life too. I mean, like I don't know if if you've ever had this experience, but like you know, you might have a, a paranormal experience or just something weird that happened with you and a, a family member or something you know ages ago, and you'll say, "Hey, do you remember that so and so?" You know, because I never forgot it, and they'll say, "Holy cow!" You know, I never really thought of that. You know, that memory just you know, I didn't haven't been carrying that with me for as long as you have for whatever reason. So yeah, yeah, I think there's something to it. Yeah, it's interesting to see the connection between. It sounds a lot like what you hear people who go through MK Ultra and all of these uh, mystery schools and stuff like that, where they're put into put through traumatic experiences to to sort of push them into different mental spaces or different experiences or different dimensions or realities. However you want to, however you want to use it, and that's what these rites of passage seem to. That's what it feels like to me. Yeah, no, I would definitely agree with that. I mean, a lot of a lot of ink has been spilt about the you know the correlation between uh, trauma more broadly and childhood trauma more specifically, and these sort of paranormal activity mm-hmm. or these paranormal encounters, to the point that some people say that it's a prerequisite, and that's you know I, I find some problems with that because. You know, you do have people who don't report that, um, but at the same time, it's it's common enough to to not be overlooked. Um, there was an example of a a study that I cite quite often in the book that is not without its shortcomings, as I sort of alluded to earlier. Um, is the the free study of different experiences about forty two hundred different experiencers, and I got um, in a little bit of a a friendly uh, disagreement with the founder Ray, Ray Hernandez, um, who I think you know has done a lot of good work in bringing these topics to the fore. So I'm not trying to disparage him in any way, but he said that, you know, Oh, well, obviously child trauma, childhood trauma doesn't have any bearing on our, you know, on the people in our survey because 80% of them reported no childhood trauma. And I said, so 20% did. (laughs) (laughs) And then, you know, and then you factor in those other things with taking a survey that, um, you know, those of us who, who who had statistics class at some point in our lives realize it's like, well, you've got self-reporting. You've got people who don't remember this, as you alluded to, Hunter. You've got people who don't interpret their trauma as actual trauma yeah. you know, mm-hmm, or, exactly. or they're ashamed to report their trauma. So yes. it would imply like 20% is far above the a lot of the national estimates. Um, and with those factors in mind, too, it seems like, yeah, childhood trauma is something with these experiences. Now, again, the thing that you've got to be careful of is saying, well, it's just the act of childhood trauma. No, I, I suspect that it's not the childhood trauma itself or any trauma itself. It's the dissociation that comes from yes, that. that exactly. puts you in contact. Yeah, that puts you in contact with these modalities. So whether that dis- disassociation, disassociation comes about through trauma or it comes about through meditation or a psychedelic experience or near-death experience, any, any, any number of things can sort of facilitate that. Or some people are just more prone to it, you know. Um, which might explain, explain some of these experience prone personalities. So yeah, there's something there's something to that. And you know why uh, dissociation would make you more prone to an alien abduction. 
I just can't see how it fits into an extraterrestrial hypothesis. I just can't. Um, but it fits really nicely into the idea that these things, whatever they are, are highly concerned with the human soul. It really well, does. Unless you, I just really quickly, unless you take the template of alien off of it and turn it into, you know, in a Christian context, a demon or a, a malevolent entity or something like that, then it makes a little more sense. But yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 it does. But again, like, you know, this, these, uh, what is it I even say in the book? Like these, these things, whatever they are, are not Arthur C. Clarke esque emissaries yeah. of atheism. Like that's just sure. not what they are. They're they're always like so many of these different encounters. It seems like the soul is at stake. And yeah, whether it's negative or positive, that's, that's sort of a different debate. But you know, again, if we're dealing with, can I can I drop an f bomb? Sure, drop okay. it. Yeah, to... okay. yeah. So if we're dealing with like extraterrestrial scientists, little green scientists from another planet, we're dealing with fucking weird little green scientists <laughs> from another planet. You know what I mean? Um, so yeah, it's just it just it, yeah it it and it sort of runs runs contrary to materialism writ large. I think too. for sure. I'm sorry. Well, I think there's also an aspect potentially of healing. That that potentially one of the reasons that, you know, 20% of these people surveyed did have some degree of uh, trauma or childhood trauma, you know, maybe, and obviously I have nothing to back this up with, but maybe one of the reasons is that these um, energies are seeing the, the uh, bruising or the, the, uh, damage to the spirit and they're approaching this child to do some healing to that child. Like maybe that's where I don't think it always has to be necessarily a negative. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I I think that, you know, I think that uh, that's, that's entirely possible that there might be some sort of intercessor equality uh, to these things. Um. And that's sort of a hopeful message, and it's not one that you yeah. get a lot in in paranormal circles. But it, you know, it is. I, I kind of wound up, like I said, it kind of Goldilocks my way towards the more positive explanation. Um, but you know, with the caveat that you know, death and uh, you know maybe even trauma can be positive in its own sort of way. You know, sure. I, I've been immersed in the recovery community for three years now, and you know, the people who come through that experience and hang on to it. Um, and who make a go of it and who succeed at sobriety, like they wouldn't trade their rock bottom for anything in the damn world. Exactly. You know what I mean? Like it's the thing that shook them out of, of what they, you know, what they were involved in. And yeah. it's, um, it's not a good experience. It's not a, sorry, it's not a pleasant experience, but it's sure. a good experience. Yeah. Uh, you're going on three years. Did you say? Yeah. Good for you. Congratulations. Well, yeah. Three years. Fantastic. Well, you know, adversity, puts you in a position where you can either expand bigger than that and learn from it and turn it into something that's uh, a teachable moment or it can conquer you or or knock you down a notch and then you need to pick yourself back up and go at it again. So I think it's, it it pushes us. But we've insulated ourselves so much from this. True. Yeah. I don't think that's a good thing. Yeah. No, I don't, I don't think so at all. Um, uh, You know, and arguably we're sort of, reaping the reaping what we've sown in that regard for uh, sure global scale um but yeah we, we insulate ourselves from from this sort of stuff and uh 
you know, maybe that's part of this message too that lies behind these phenomena. Could be. Yeah. Well, another, did you have something? Well, I was just going to say, I tell my academic advisors that I'm a fucking diamond. That I started out as a lump of coal, but all the pressure that I've like been that. under, I'm a fucking diamond now because You're I needed like that. all that pressure. You're a cluster yeah. of diamonds. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. No, it's it's 100 percent true. And you know, it's it's like, and you, you know, and I think a lot of us figure this out as we go through life. Like you know, I I've always said that you know, death doesn't scare me as much as you know, disappointing loved ones or hurting loved yeah, ones, exactly, or, un- or ha- having unfulfilled potential. Like these things are. You know, that's where Emmett the Soul Devourer resides. You know, yeah, that's what that is. Yeah, I see the the soul uh, and the physical experience that we go through with that soul. It's like the soul is the book, and you, and through your life, you're putting bookmarks in different places in that book. And then at the end, when you shed your physical body, you turn the book up and you shake all the bookmarks out. That's I'm just I just don't <laughs> want to lose my bookmarks sometimes. You know, like yeah. I, <laughs> I worked but, hard for those. But the key, yeah, but the key is to not care where your book. Exactly. Yeah, it, I, yes, I, I'm in my weaker moments. I, I'm I'm worried about the bookmarks. Oh, Usually, I'm, I'm not. I'm not saying I don't care about my bookmarks. <laughs> Nobody writes as many books as I have without for caring sure. about bookmarks. Yes, you've got literal ones. I, I realize on another level, like it just yeah, it doesn't matter. Yeah, in the big picture. So another concept that you you dig into in the book that I've not run across to uh, the the explanation and the exploration of uh, in any other context is psychopomps. Describe what those are. Yeah, it's one of those words that like I say it to people and they're like, I have no idea what that means. And I'm like, oh, but you do. You just don't have a word for it. Um, (laughs) So if I I say the Grim Reaper, people are like, oh, okay, I get it now. Um, Yeah, so psychopomps are any deity, folk figure ancestor, spiritual leader, uh, natural phenomena or animal that is believed by a culture to escort human lives across the threshold of death into whatever their version of the afterlife is. Mm -hmm. So by far, probably one of the most common ones that we're aware of is the Grim Reaper, but you know, there are plenty of others that you've run across Uh, in terms of deities. We're dealing with characters like Anubis and uh, Hermes, uh, Karen, I figured out, I found out it was named, it was, the, the pronunciation is Karen. Oh, so okay. Not Charon, but Karen. <laughs> so I always had to be like, okay, not the one with the hair who complains, Karen, but like the, the, one, with the, the one with the oar who goes across the, the river The river sticks, sticks. yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> and just basically, you know, every pantheon has, has these characters. Sometimes being a psychopomp is one of the many duties. Like Hermes was a lot of different things. Odin was a psychopomp and he was not strictly just a psychopomp. He had a lot of other roles as all father, but you know, you do see these characters sort of pulling double duty. Um, folk figures would be characters like the Grim Reaper or the, uh, the Breton Anku, which is this sort of a uh, headless uh, last person of the year buried in a cemetery and comes around and rounds up the dead on the next year on his death cart. Um, uh, ancestors, that's pretty obvious and is one of the most common ones that you see in near-death experiences today. You know, your, your dead loved ones who have gone before you or escorting you to the other side. Uh, you know, spiritual practitioners, obviously shamans. Like That was one of their primary duties was <clears throat> either serving as um, serving as a retriever of souls whenever someone was ill and their soul had gone wandering mm-hmm. or as uh, or as a, uh, as, as a psychopomp. Natural phenomena, like uh, in some northern cultures, the aurora borealis, but also in a lot of different cultures, the sun and the moon, because they have that sort of uh, death-rebirth cycle uh, encoded in them. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and animals. And this is probably one of the most interesting ones for me is like, you kind of see the same animals crop up time and time again, uh, to the extent that, you know, Mircea Eliade in his uh, book, Shamanism, Ecstatic, mm-hmm. Archaic Techniques of Ecstasy. Yes. Um, mentioned, uh, you know, the three animals that were the shamanic animals par excellence were also the three most common psychopomps that you see across cultures, horses, dogs, and birds. And each of these sort of have in their own character uh, attributes that we would, you know, ascribe as being useful to a psychopomp. So birds can, you know, travel to far off distances that human beings can't reach. Horses can get you there faster than anything else. And, uh, and dogs are, of course, you know, loyal. But these are also some of the animals that crop up time again, time and again in UFO stories. You know, <laughs> it's it's so wild. Um, and then when you sort of look at some of the other psychopomp symbols um, that pop out, you know, the boat is just this. You know, people say things are universal, and they don't really mean that they're universal. But the boat might be literally a universal psychopomp symbol. I mean, you've got our first. Uh, Perhaps the first caskets in China were actually repurposed boats. Oh, you've, got, wow. you've got Viking burials, you know, mm-hmm. um, not only burials at sea, but also, you know, stone ship burials where they have stones arranged in the shape of a ship around a, a Viking, a Norse grave. Um, and obviously, as we already alluded to Karen, <laughs> that <laughs> idea of crossing a, a river or a body of water on a, on a ship. And like, you know, the, the, the ship takes you, it's a symbol of travel and it takes you past the horizon where you can see. And, uh, you know, it just so happens that everything about the UFO phenomenon is transportation obsessed. You know, where do they come from? Where are they going? Why are they here? Why are they taking me? It's all so, so it's still a transportation symbol. And I would argue that it's it's basically a, a reimagined version of the psychopomp's boat, you know, just in 21st century clothing. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then you start to look at some of the qualities of the of psychopomps themselves, which often share a lot of qualities with tricksters. And everybody's yes. aware that everybody's aware that all these entities in the paranormal have been compared to tricksters. So it would kind of stand to reason that you could also make a comparison to psychopomps as well. And there are plenty of comparisons that can be made. Uh, one of my favorite ones is that you often find this motif of a of a wand with psychopomps. Um, you know, you have uh, the staff of Hermes. <clears throat> You have uh, the ore of of Karen, which can sort of be viewed through the same way. There's a, a Japanese Buddhist psychopomp named Jizo who has a staff. Um, you know, you see this wand motif again. And, and what is a wand for? A wand is for directing, right? It's for either commanding magical purposes or conducting a symphony or leading a marching band, I guess. So, you know, you have this sort of idea of the wand as being the one who bears the wand is the leader and the opener of ways. You know, and the, that's where the, the name the Golden Bow takes its name from. Uh, James Fraser's epic is because, you know, the door to the other world is open with a golden bow, which, again, is basically a wand. And I'll be damned. What do these fairies and aliens always love carrying? You know, wands. Exactly. <laughs> you know, we think of the pop culture fairy thing because it's been so polluted by, you know, being always uniformly time, t- tiny and always having wings. We're like, oh, well, of course the wands are are an artistic flourish of modernity as well, but it's not like you can find that all the way back in some of the earliest, um, you know, fairy beliefs that were even around, you know, as, as oral stories. And time and again, you see aliens brandishing these wands. So that's just like one example among many of how these entities seem to resemble psychopomps. And mm-hmm. when you start to take into consideration that psychopomps are leading you from the threshold of one world into another, it's like, yes. well, this kind of makes perfect sense that, that you can draw these comparisons and, there's some indication that psychopomps might not solely appear at the time of death. They might also sort of guide you through moments of transition as well, which I suspect might be what hap- what's happening in the uh, 
in the lives of some alien abductees. Yeah, and and in Mike Cleland's work, uh, uh, how he, yeah, yes. you know where I'm going. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, and, and owls. Are, not only are birds prominent psychopomps. I mean, again, it's one of those things that's really truly universal. Um, but not only are birds the soul and birds psychopomps, but like owls are an especially potent uh, yes. subset of that. And I'll be damned, you know, there's, there's owls in the UFO phenomenon. Um, regarding horses, people forget that the first uh, the first livestock mutilation recorded in the modern era uh, was Snippy the horse, wasn't a cow. Um, and of course, they have dogs that show up through uh, through the contactee literature and even through some of the modern stuff. Um, there's most famous was Buck Nelson's Venusian dog that weighed like 400 pounds named Big Bo. Not that I, <laughs> not that I believe, not that I believe every contactee story, right. But sure. like, I, I, I still think that they get at something thematically, uh-huh. you know, motivically. I still think that there's some, some sort of grain of truth there. Um, you know, and, and there were other animals that were given that sort of psychopomp status. One of them might be the deer. Um, and of course deer are, among the most common fairy animals that you see time and yeah, time, and yeah. time again. Um, and one of the most famous uh, uh, alien abduction reports, uh, one of Bud Hopkins subjects named Virginia, her memory was bookended by a deer leading her into and out of the forest. And later under hypnotic regression, your mileage may vary. Uh, <laughs> she, she, uh, she revealed that she, you know, had this experience with, with UFO occupants. And it was again, bookended by a deer, literally doing that sort of fairy-esque thing of, of leading a maiden into the forest. Exactly. Uh, yeah. All right, my friend. Uh, can you tell the wonderful listeners out there where they can find your work, your books, and maybe you can tell us what you're into next? Sure. Uh, my website is joshuacutchin.com, J-O-S-H-U-A-C-U-T-C-H-I-N.com, just like a cut on your chin. Um <laughs> Yeah, no S. I've had to say that before. So, uh-huh. yeah, that's that's uh, that's the that's the website. Um, and it, I try to keep up to date everything there. Um, Ecology of Souls Volume One and Two is available on Amazon, and I just released a collection of essays um, that I contributed to and was editor on called um, called Fairy Films. That's all about looking at different films that either explicitly or obliquely feature fairies and sort of how they uh, do and don't conform to to fairy mythology. Fantastic, and I. Hopefully we can arrange something for maybe September-ish to have you and some folks that are pitching in on that to come and talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Fantastic. Well, do you sell, just quickly, yeah. do you sell your books on your website? I, I do. If you want to write me, send me a note, I also do uh, autograph copies and I actually do them for a discount. Is um, it oh, better cool. to purchase on your site or through Amazon? How, how do you get most benefit? <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 it's better on my site. Um, the profit margin's better, and also, uh, you know, Amazon is actually raising all the prices on uh, their Kindle books, not yeah. their, their Kindle publishing books, uh-huh. um, next month. So, yeah, uh, writing to me, and you know, we'll we'll start a conversation about how much to pay and where it's go, where it goes to, and how it should be, um, how it should be addressed in terms of this, the autograph inside the cover. But uh, yeah, I, I do, uh, as opposed to. Um, basically 30 bucks a piece online for volume one and volume two. Um, I do uh, 50 bucks for both uh, on my website. And then if you get the companion, the companion at cost. So 65 bucks for the whole thing. Fantastic. Fantastic. And I I can get the fairy films book directly from you too. 
Uh, I have one copy. <laughs> so, so if you, if you, yeah, if you if I act if, now, act, act now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Will I get a free set of Ginsu knives with that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, great. Thank you so much, Josh. It's been fantastic once again, and you're just gonna have to come back on again, if not for the second part of this list, for the second book. Absolutely. If you don't yeah. mind, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Further on the later on this year. No, I, I would love to. Okay, Thank fantastic. You so and I will let Thanks you know so when this comes out and we'll put all, all the right. links or the link in the episode notes. Fantastic. Yeah. All right. No, it was so nice speaking with you, Hunter. Yes, it was amazing to finally meet you. I, I have long been wanting to have this dialogue with you. So thank you so much. Oh, absolutely. My, my pleasure. And it's not it's the first of many. Of yes, course. Absolutely. Fantastic. All right, all right my friend. All right. Take care, y'all. Yeah. Have all a right, wonderful evening. Too. You too. Yes. Uh, Ta-ta. I am so excited to share this episode with Marina. She is absolutely going to love it. Yeah. This is the first time that you got to speak with Joshua. And she has had her own uh, NDE um, interest and alien experiences and fairy experiences so this is right up her alley this is a a, a virtual buffet a veritable buffet of topics and stuff to dig into a potpourri as it were well hope you enjoy it marina hello she's going to she's gonna love it yeah he was great yes i i was a little bit daunted not by how many questions you had but (laughs) about the subject matter because i thought okay if someone has written one book okay that's easy to digest two books uh two books in a companion book then we're we're headed into some deep waters. Yes, but of course, the, the intention was never to cover both volumes. It was just to cover the first volume. Yeah, but, you know, I I kind of fly blind and trust that I will be able to intuit and pull, pull uh, the interview into maybe a different direction or, or be able to bring something to the table. And I, I feel like uh, it was a very well-rounded conversation for sure you kept up definitely yeah he's very articulate and uh, very lucid and i i just love the way he approaches the subject matter brings stuff in from all aspects and levels and cultures and experiences it's amazing just the two bigfoot books that he did with timothy renner were fantastic and this just continued in that line i haven't read his books before where the footprints end but i highly intend to but i'm too busy reading the new stuff that he's putting out so yeah it's interesting to that to think that no one has attempted to do this because it's so when you know when he's talking it makes so much sense to do what pull all to, those things together to gather all this data and then kind of do a compare and a contrast of all of these experiences. Mm-hmm. It's so fascinating. For sure. It's dense stuff, but uh, it's not dry or boring in the least. It's so, it's a pleasure to sift through it and just absorb all of the information. It's great. It's fantastic. I, I feel always because I have so many books to read, like I feel rushed but I don't want to rush through his books because they're a pleasure to read. They're really well-written and extremely informative and greatly illustrated. And I'm all about realms. Me too, yes. I like the word realm. 
I do too. And Absolutely. I just like the idea of realms and I like the idea of the fairy realm and, mm-hmm. and, you know, kind of how he ended the, the dialogue about why you shouldn't eat or drink in that realm that woke me up. I was like, okay, <laughs> important, you, you, important information. You realized that you needed to eat in this realm. No, I just realized you know, that sometimes in what I might consider dreaming is actually an out-of-body experience. Mm-hmm. And uh, I do have these experiences where things are trying to feed me or share meals with me or share things with me. And that definitely gives me pause. Yeah, that's interesting. He has a whole book on... Um eating and other realms uh, called, I, you mentioned it and I'm completely drawing a blank. I didn't eat it. I didn't eat it. I, did. I didn't read it. <laughs> Feast of souls or something yeah. like that. Yeah. I have to look Fa- it up. Recipes from fairyland. No. <laughs> um, so that, that might be something that you should check out, but it's so interesting how. What? Eat, pray, love, fairy edition. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, and crickets. I got I both. I, I got crickets mean, and I got... I didn't mean to hit both at the same time. <laughs> uh, it's interesting that materialist science wants to write all of this stuff off, although it's been going on for century upon century before materialist science ever raised its ugly head. And and so many of these things are, are stories that uh, they go beyond a, any particular culture. They just... They manifest differently in many cultures all around the world. So how on earth could you deny that? Right. Yeah. But you were talking about published science, peer-reviewed science. You're talking about a very, very small cadre of people. These are not, this doesn't represent every single scientist, every single person who is a doctor, a physician, a psychiatrist. There are people who have varying degrees of beliefs and their own lore and their own family history lore that they believe. And many of them, what's unfortunate is keep quiet about it. And they don't take that to the public sphere or take it to the academic sphere because they don't want to be discredited. Yeah, I, I understand that. But I think they're the minority, unfortunately. There's not many Rupert Sheldrakes in the world, at least that are writing books. I, I don't agree with that. I oh. think, as I said, I think there are many people who have these belief systems and these thoughts and have... Uh, because you're talking about the world and how many people are operating in the world in the scientific community. There's a small segment of the population who is getting published, who does not represent all of science, who does not represent all of the medical community. I should quantify that by saying mainstream science. Sure. Yeah. Sure. I mean, I, I have spoken to lots of different doctors and lots of different psychologists and psychiatrists. And they say, this is not some work that I would publish. This is not something because I can't back it up with a uh, longitudinal study or a uh, experiment, a hypothesized experiment. 
Uh, but it doesn't mean that they don't believe in those things or that they're not open to them. So I think that's one thing, that's one move into the um, the medical field that's happening more and more is that people are starting to look at health in the in terms of culture and cultural lore and not just saying, oh, well, just because we don't believe in that here in this country doesn't mean that th- that doesn't exist for you as a patient. So someone here may say, I hear voices and from another culture, that's part of their their cultural norm is hearing voices or speaking to spirits. And so I, I think that's being more as, you know, as we move into a, maybe a more global um relationship with mental health, I think a lot of these things are, are starting to, be, to become more accepted or at least discussed. There's hope is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. I wasn't saying there, there wasn't hope, but when I say science, I, I do paint with a broad brush. I should say mainstream science or corporate science, exactly. not science, not science as a discipline. Exactly. Um, I think that that is unfortunately the version of science that many people refer to when they say science uh, and that the rigidified uh, trust in that corporate or mainstream science becomes uh, begets the term scientism because it 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 accepts that version of science as the be all end all uh, and then you get terms like don't question the science, which is, I mean, that's what science should be. That's what science in essence is, is questioning and then testing and then exploring and then keeping an open mind. But that is not the prevalent version of science that we get. So I think many people's version of science, when they refer to it in, in, in common nomenclature, is that version, is the, is the institutionalized uh, funded by corporations, materialist-based science. And I, I don't think that that's, in reality, that's just the tip of the iceberg. Right. Of and the that's material only, iceberg. Right. There, that's only one version of science and um, scientific exploration and study. And I think it's really important to understand that when you consider how many studies are peer-reviewed and published compared to how many studies are conducted and not peer-reviewed, or they are peer-reviewed but then not published. There's a lot of stuff that gets lost in the, through that sifting process that is valuable science and should continue to be explored and examined. Uh, but you have a very, again, this is a small club, and there's only a few people who are allowed through those gates. So I think that's something to consider. And anyone who is working in the scientific field who hears trust the science will give you a hearty eye roll because they do understand that science is constantly changing. And that's the whole idea behind it is that there's not one static truth. There's not one static version. The, this is an insane um, statistic, but 60% of the published, and I'm talking everything from 
uh, psychology, psychiatry, to medical science, experiments that have been done have not been able to be replicated. So when you think of that, that doesn't mean that those studies are valid, and it certainly doesn't mean that they're invalid. It just means that there's a lot of variables in those studies. So when someone says, don't question the science, what they're basically saying is, don't question me, (laughs) because they don't want to have to answer. Well, I think, too, I think people always refer to peer review peer-reviewed studies as like the the quintessential vetting process for the validity of any scientific endeavor. And I, I, I don't buy that at all. I don't think that, that that has much validity at all because those other scientists are human beings too. And there have been many um, tests of that vetting process where it's failed miserably. Like, there was a group of people who, and I think that we've discussed this before, probably off the air, where they have come, they, they just invented false studies and false thesis. Theses? I don't know. That sounds too close to another word. Um, like the prevalence of rape in dog parks, leashless dog parks. Mm-hmm. And and they they reviewed it and they... I don't know what the terminology is, approved it or whatever, gave their stamp of approval on it many times over. And then they revealed that this was totally false and that they were just testing to see exactly how, what kind of a vetting process this was. So, I mean, it's, it's skewed. I think it's skewed and, 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 and it shouldn't be skewed. I think it not, I don't mean to imply that it's always skewed, but it does have the possibility for, not being a a um, an infallible vetting process. Absolutely. Well, and primarily because you have a small group of people who are doing these reviews and they are doing them blindly, meaning they have no idea who the scientist is. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they there is uh, intentionally no bias. So you can't say, well, I'm going to get my buddies... Uh, study published, uh, but it it is a vo- very porous process, and it is definitely flawed. Um, but I think that's part of you know any system when you're dealing with the system that there's that potential. Um, but I don't think that that means that we have to throw the proverbial science out with the bathwater. Yeah, and I don't pick on science. I mean, it comes up a lot in conversations here. But I don't pick on science as the sole institution that I believe is too calcified for its own good uh, in some senses. I think anything that we turn into an institution or relegate to a field of study, uh, you get a bunch of people there who have been there too long. They're not, you know, their ability or their desire to even push things past a certain point has vanished or they're just cynical and they think that they know it all. They've got all the conclusions that they need. And if they get new data in, then, you know, they just either flat out reject it or try to delegitimize it. Um, and yeah. I think people just don't realize that, that that's, there's a whole lot of ricketiness in this structure in these structures that we look to as right. being sort of bastions of, 
experts and, and right. you, know, you know what I'm saying? It's just, it's many tentacles of the same octopi yeah, yeah. in that how a lot of this stuff gets thrown into uh, the, the mainstream is via the media. Yes. So what will happen is that the media will take hold of some really hot headline uh, that, you know, the, the person who has conducted the study has written a great title for the study and then the media will get a hold of that and not read the study. And it'll say, you know, mushrooms cure cancer or mushrooms uh, cure PTSD. And that will run in a paper without in, you know, online or wherever. And the person who reads that headline, they don't read the article from written by someone who hasn't read the study. (laughs) So someone has cherry picked one piece of information and then someone turns around and gloms something off of that one piece of information and says, this is what the science says, but they don't know. Okay. Well, what are the conditions and what was this a hypothesis test? Was this a top down study or was this a, a bottom up study? Because they're two very different things. One is about proving a hypothesis another is about just examining the results of an experiment so i think that's where there's a lot of confusion is what is what is the science we're talking about and where is it being gathered and you know all of this comes down to discernment i have to read literally hundreds of peer reviewed papers and scientific studies and what I was told in class and it frightened me was just read the abstract, just read the abstract and read the conclusion. And I I just thought, but that's not the study. (laughs) I I really need to know what, what is being examined here in order to uh, digest it and understand it. Which is ironically all proving the importance of firsthand experience. Exactly. You're not there doing the study. It, and you throw you 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 entrust that information to somebody else or several people in the chain of events. Uh, you know who fucking knows what can happen to it. It can get distorted beyond all recognition and be twisted again, like the institutionalized science studies in the first place. Right. Twisted to somebody else's means. So well, that's why sixty percent aren't r- replicatable is because someone has said the most important thing for them is getting published. It's not about proving anything. So their instinct and their impetus is to get their research published. It's not about doing the best, cleanest research. Josh, we haven't lost sight of you and your brilliance. No, and I love, I, what I love is how much he refers to science. So, you know, this is a learned fellow. He's not just woo woo, you know, he's, he's someone who knows what for. Absolutely. Absolutely. And brings it to the table, all of it to the table. Yeah. I think there should be a volume three and four, but that's just me. He's got bigger and better things to go to move on to like his new book that just came out and this 
novel that I'm not sure if he just got done rewriting it or whether it's just now coming out. Did you do you remember which one he said? He said he has the fairy and film. Fairy films. He has one copy of it, so he did not clarify if it has just come out or if it is. No, it's it's out. I'm talking about he's also written a novel. Oh. Yeah. And I don't know whether he said that that was out or that was that he just finished it. You don't know either. Okay. We need to use the restroom and make cookies <gasps> in that order. What? <laughs> did, I, did I expose a secret? No. No secrets. <laughs> I have no secrets. <laughs> okay. And close the chicken coop up. Um, so, yes. And we've been babbling for almost 20 minutes. But thank you. Don't my eyebrows look fantastic? They do. <laughs> they're not the, the eyebrows you were born with, but I mean the eyebrow color you were born with. <gasps> they are too. No secrets. Hashtag no they secrets. They are too. No, you made them darker. How dare you? I'll smudge it off on my hand. Waterproof. Smear it on my cookies. <laughs> it's okay. chocolate. I admit it, Emily. <laughs> you put cocoa in your eye- eyebrows. Just straight up chocolate, milk chocolate. <laughs> and then use sugar as mascara. Okay. Thank you all so much for listening. Uh, hopefully you enjoyed it. Josh is fantastic. He'll be back for sure, for sure. Um, and you can, I highly recommend you order his books, but through him. Yes. Um, it'll be cheaper and it'll have his autograph. His Some of his energy will be in that exactly. book. Exactly. So. And yeah. goes tr- directly to the source. That's Absolutely. what I say. Yeah. That's, that's Fuck the Amazon. best. Fuck Amazon. Um, if you would like to get a hold of us for whatever reason, praise, blame, recipes, guest suggestions, whatever, uh, you can contact us through our website or the Melt Podcast at ProtonMail.com or... Hunter-Muse at ProtonMail.com. And um, the best way you can help us, not only, I mean, financially is fantastic, but uh, just spreading the word, just uh, forwarding our podcast or an episode or our website or whatever to people that you think might be interested and just getting the word out there if you think that somebody might benefit from, from these conversations. So would be highly appreciated. Um, Thank you all so much for listening. We love you. Patrons, thank you so much for contributing. We're about ready to bust out on locals, which I'm much more happier about than Patreon. And yeah, we'll keep you all tuned in. Great stuff coming down the line. Until then, farewell. (laughs) They can't hear that on the audio version of the podcast. But she smiled and raised her her cocoa eyebrows. (laughs) 